The scripture reading is taken from Galatians 3, chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred has come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. And this is a very meaty chunk. Thank you, Pastor Tony, for breaking this down for us. (laughs) My pleasure, Kimberly. Kimberly is right, by the way. This is solid meat here. Um, We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. And Galatia was what is now Turkey. And Paul had planted a series of churches there, had traveled, preached the gospel, collected together people who responded to that gospel, formed churches, and then he moved on. But he kept in touch with them. And they would ask him questions about some new teachers that came along. And in the early church, there was a debate. There was a conflict, an argument. Do you need to be Jewish to be a Christian? After all, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was Jewish. All his disciples were Jewish. Paul was Jewish. All of them started to preach the gospel in Israel, uh, in the center of Jerusalem. They were enmeshed in this Jewish identity, Jewish law, Jewish culture. And so Paul goes off and he starts to preach the gospel to non-Jews, to Gentiles forming churches. But after he had left, Jewish Christians would come and they would say, sure, Paul has a gospel, has good news, but if you want to be a real Christian, you've got to be like us. You've got to become Jewish. You've got to circumcise your sons. You've got to follow all the laws in the Old Testament. After all, it is the same God who gave that law who you believe is Jesus Christ. It was a good argument. In the letter to Galatians, Paul counters that argument passionately. In fact, he uses some of his most intemperate language in this letter because this goes to the very core of what he believed and what he taught and the Christian gospel that he spent his life preaching and defending. And that's why it is so meaty. This is Paul exposing and showing the roots of Christian faith. Linking the Old Testament and the New Testament. Helping us understand who Jesus is in relationship to the Old Testament and to the law at Mount Sinai and to the patriarchs and everything that the Old Testament records. It shows us how Paul was thinking. It shows us the roots of his theology and the roots of Christianity. And so sometimes it's a little... um, Involved, 
But it is of the essence of understanding the roots of Christianity, of the essence of understanding why we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, understanding what is the relationship between Jesus and the law that so much of the Old Testament is about. So let's have a look at it. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. So he's building his argument here, and we, and we saw last time that Paul was linking Abraham's faith in Genesis with Christian faith, and he's building on that argument. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been established, so it is in this case. Covenant. This is the key concept of understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, you can translate Old Testament as Old Covenant and New Testament as New Covenant. And so this is of the essence of understanding the relationship. What is a covenant? This is key to Paul's argument and intact the entire argument of the letter to the Galatians. A covenant is a legal promise. It's like a contract. It's an arrangement <clears throat> between two parties, an arrangement of obligations between two groups, two individuals, two institutions, whatever. But there's a crucial difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract defines the limits of the relationship. When you make a contract with somebody, you limit its applicability to whatever the deal is, to the money amount, to the particular relationship you have. You know, if you're in a professional relationship, a contract of work limits itself to the work hours. It doesn't allow your, your employer to come into your house, into your life into the intimacy of your other relationships. It's the same with institutions. Contracts are all about limiting liability and applicability. The contract is about this and not this. The contract is limited to this time and not beyond it. Limited to this amount and no more. The essence of a contract is limit and limited liability. It's a key concept to think about. What about a covenant? A covenant is different in that it is a relationship without limits. Unlimited liability. Think about the covenant of marriage. What are the limits? Marriage spreads to your social life, your financial life. Stretches to every part of your life, even your bedroom and your bed and your sleeping habits. There is no limit to the covenant of marriage to become one flesh. And so that's the key concept to think about. A contract is all about limits and limits on liability. A covenant is all about no limits, unlimited liability. And unlimited liability is rare now. I mean, it's very rare in the business world or in any world because it's so risky. 
When I was uh, growing up in England in the 70s, there was a, a big financial crisis. Lloyd's of London was famous for insuring everything and anything. It was one of the big, biggest insurance houses in, in the world. And the way it was able to do that was the different partners that made up Lloyd's had a list of names. So that was their technical term, names. And a name pledged all their possessions, unlimited liability, to the insurance contract. And it was the reason that Lloyd's was so flexible and could insure everything or anything. And it was a very uh, lucrative and safe way of making money. Many retired policemen and, and uh, firemen and army officers, many retired people became names because it was guaranteed income from around the world. All the British Empire had uh, insurance contracts. And the money flowed to London and through the names to these families. And so it was a well-established and lucrative business model. Until the asbestos crisis in America in the 70s. When asbestos was found to cause asbestosis, a disease of the lung, it was a crisis because hospitals and schools and jails and businesses had put asbestos everywhere. And who had insured those buildings? Lloyds of London. And as the claims built and built and built through the 70s, unlimited liability bankrupt hundreds and then thousands of families in England, rich people. Unlimited liability meant that they lost their houses. They lost their bank accounts. They lost their retirement accounts. It was a huge event when I was growing up in the 70s. And Lloyd's now is a limited partnership. Unlimited liability is a bad idea because the other party can come after everything that you have, everything that you are, every part of your life, no limits. And that's the problem with it. Be careful who you make a covenant with. And yet, what do we see in the Bible? God makes a covenant through Abraham with humanity. Verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Paul is looking back to Genesis when God establishes his relationship with Abraham. Genesis 12 says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there's the promise. Abraham, if you follow what I say, if you go to the place that I'm going to send you, the promised land, I'm going to bless you and all the peoples of the earth through you. But how is this blessing going to happen? What mechanism will God use? How can this one man become a blessing to everyone on earth. Well, Paul hints at it. Verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to you and your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. 
the promise, the blessing, is going to be fulfilled through Abraham and his seed. That is, the generations that come after him. From generation to generation, all the way down to Jesus. Which is why, by the way, that in the New Testament, Luke uh, and Matthew start with genealogies linking Jesus back to Abraham. Specifically, Paul is reminding the Galatians of a passage, an extraordinary story, back in Genesis 15, where God explicitly establishes this covenant. And I'd like to read that to you. So this is Genesis 15. This is after the promise. but This is God showing how this promise, this covenant, is going to be fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. This is back where um, Abraham had come from. You have given me no children, and so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. We've seen in the old in um, Paul's letter this notion of righteousness being um, right before God, being in right relationship with God, depends on faith in God and His promises. And right here we see the first time it happens: Abraham, his faith in God's promise is his righteousness. Genesis continues. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. What a weird thing to do. God says he's going to establish this relationship, and says, go and get these animals. And what does Abraham do? He gives his animals and he cuts them in half. He obviously knows what he's doing, but what is he doing? Why would you do that? Cut animals in half. Imagine the bloodiness of it. The what a what a scene it is. It's just weird. What Abraham is recognizing, and what Abraham knows, is this is how you make a covenant. Remember where we are here. This is 4,000 odd years ago. There are no lawyers. 
There are no police, no prisons. Most people are illiterate. Very little paper around, even if they are literate. How do you establish a relationship with somebody? How do you make a binding covenant? Well, you need something vivid, something visible, something dramatic that establishes the bond. And so you get the animals, and then you cut them in two, and this typically would have been done in public, so everybody would have seen the covenant, and the vividness and the bloodiness of it, the spectacle of it, would have been a memory of the covenants and its relationship. You would create this corridor, this path, between the animal halves, and then you and the person you're establishing the covenant would walk down between the animal halves, and you would say something to the um, sense of, if I break this covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. May I pay the price if I break the covenant. May I be torn in two. And it was a way of vividly demonstrating the reality of the relationship and the penalty of not fulfilling the relationship. Unlimited liability. And if you don't come through with your promise, if you don't do what you're promising to do, you get the chop. I mean, we still have this sense when we talk about cutting a covenant, uh, cutting a contract with somebody. It's the same idea. So the animals... I've been brought by Abraham, and he cuts them in two, and he creates the path, and there they are. And then the story continues. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates. On that day, God makes his covenant with Abraham, the father of faith, and his promise that he will bless everyone on earth through Abraham and his descendants. But notice, it's a strange covenant. God appears as a smoking pot and a, and a burning torch. But where is Abraham? The whole point of a covenant and walking between the animals is that both parties agree to fulfill the covenant. I will fulfill my part of the bargain, and if I don't, may I be cut in two, and you will fulfill your part of the bargain, and if you don't, may you be cut in two. But Abraham doesn't walk between the pieces. Only God walks between the pieces. So what is he saying? What kind of covenant is this? God is saying, I and I alone will guarantee this relationship, this covenant. And if there is any failure, I and I alone will pay the cost. God is saying this bargain will depend only on my faithfulness and I will guarantee that it is fulfilled. God is saying I'm going to hold up both ends of the bargain. 
mine as God and yours, Abraham, as a human being. And I'm going to be responsible for both of them. This is unlimited liability. This is a relationship without limits. God is saying, I will bear the whole cost and any cost if there is a problem with this relationship. And that's why this is a covenant of grace. That is a covenant that doesn't cost our side of the bargain, the human side, anything. All the cost is going to be borne by God. He is the guarantor. It is his faithfulness that is at issue, not Abraham or his descendants. And that's why this is so significant. It's the first appearance, by the way, of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. So let's continue with our passage from Galatians. Verse 17. What I mean is this. Remember, this is Paul making his argument. The law, introduced 430 years later, the law, he's now talking about the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai and to the uh, Israelites as they gathered around, you know, the Ten Commandments and everything in Leviticus. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Covenant and the covenant of grace, unlimited liability that God takes on himself, trumps the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. That's what it's saying. That covenant that God makes with Abraham stands and supersedes the law at Mount Sinai because it is an everlasting covenant of grace and it is unlimited in its applicability. Writing about this, John Stott. John Stott is a, was a fabulous uh, pastor and theologian who planted a lot of churches in London. He loved to talk about this uh, passage. And he wrote this. God's dealing with Abraham and Moses were based on two different principles. To Abraham, he gave a promise. I will show you the land and I will bless you. To Moses, he gave the law, summarizing the Ten Commandments. What is the difference between them? In the promise to Abraham, God said, I will. I will. I will. The promises set forth a religion of God. God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. Because the covenant of grace tells us what God will do and what he is responsible for. But in the law of Moses, God said, Thou shalt, thou shalt not. The law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility. The conclusion to which Paul is leading is that the Christian religion is the religion of Abraham and not of Moses. 
of promise or covenant and not law or contract. And that Christians are enjoying today the promise which God made to Abraham centuries ago. There you have the key foundation. Shows you how the New Testament and its promises relate to the Old Testament and its promises. Shows you the foundation and the roots of Christianity. Shows your relationship of Jesus to Abraham and God's promises. And crucially, and this is what Paul is arguing for in his letter to the Galatians, the difference between a religion based on faith in God and what he will do, a gracious religion, and a religion based on what we are expected to do, a religion of law, of limited contracts. It's saying that Christianity is much closer to a marriage and the unlimited intimacy of marriage than it is to any kind of professional relationship you could have with someone. It is about giving everything and receiving everything. It is about being willing to pay the cost for the relationship, even if the other person lets you down. It's about unlimited liability, unlimited intimacy, to becoming one. That's Christianity. And Paul contrasts it with this limited notion of the law and its limited applicability. By the way, hopefully we'll have some clear and beautiful nights this summer. Not this rain and this cloud and this gray. Next time you go out and you look up at the stars, remember God said to Abraham, look at the stars. Your offspring, the blessing will be like those stars. That is the sign of the Christian covenant. It's the reason that when you see a beautiful starry night, you want to worship. And you can and you should worship. And every time you look and you see a star, you should say, thank you, God. Because that star is a guarantor of this promise. Unlimited liability on God's behalf. A guarantor that will pay any price so that we can be in relationship with him. That's worthy of worship. Paul continues, and this is the the final point. Why then was the law given at all? Good question, Paul. Why then was the law given if we have this covenant of grace? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, Jesus, to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. He's talking about Moses. A mediator have a more, implies more than one party, but God is one. The language is a little confused there. The translation is hard because the Hebrew words are so compact. But it's referring to the fact that God is one, or as Moses was his representative to the people of Israel. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions. John Stott puts it this way. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? 
He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, even provoked sin, and condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, and guilty, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed himself to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the scars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Martin Luther in the Reformation put it this way, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Final thought. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he walks down between those animals by himself. And he says, I uphold both sides of this bargain. I will be the guarantor of this relationship and pay the price if this relationship turns sour. And of course, it does, and it has. If you read the whole of the Old Testament, it is a history of all the ways the Jewish people failed to live up to the covenant, and the times they rebelled and, and turned away from God and even ran away after other gods. Until Jesus comes and becomes a human being so that he, as a human being, can uphold the human side of this covenant. God's on one side, and now Jesus, as a human being, born under the law, is on the other side. And, of course, he fulfills the law. Jesus is perfect. The law of Moses has nothing on him. But there is the, still the liability of human failure to live up to the covenant of grace. We have not held up our end of the bargain with God. And therefore, God becomes man so that he can pay the cost of not fulfilling the bargain. So he can hold up his end of the deal. And so you, now you know why he has to go to the cross. Jesus going to the cross on our behalf is revealing God being faithful to the covenant. 
God is perfect, but he holds up the imperfect side as well. Pays the cost of imperfect people. Guarantees that that relationship that God makes with Abraham to be a blessing to him and to be a blessing to the world and to all people, Jesus shows that God is faithful, that the covenant is real. More than that, it shows that he will do anything, anything, to be in an unlimited relationship with you and with me. There is nothing he won't do, even the death of Jesus Christ agonizing on the cross. He will go to any extent and do whatever it takes to make sure we're in that covenant, that marriage, that unlimited intimacy that God promised to Abraham. Jesus had to go to the cross or our end of the deal would have fallen down and we would be lost. And the fact that he went there and he did everything that was required and he stayed there until it was done shows that we will never be excluded. There is nothing that you or I can ever do or not do because it's already been done in Jesus. And that's Paul's point. Jesus Christ and nothing else. You don't have to fulfill the law. You don't have to circumcise your children. You don't have to do anything because Jesus Christ did it already. All we have to do is put our faith in him and what he did. Nothing else. Him alone. And we are secure in the promises of that gospel. The promises of that unlimited covenant of grace. Secure in the arms of the God who would make that deal with sinful humanity. With you and with me. That's what Paul is fighting for. That's why he's so passionate. It's what the gospel is all about. It's what the Bible is all about. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that we are held by you in a covenant of grace, that our future doesn't depend on what we do or don't do, but what on what Christ has already done. Lord, we thank you that this is the living reality of our relationship with you. Help us believe, Lord. Help us have faith in this truth. Help us build our life and our church on this gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.